1: About Livewire, a major percentage of our budget comes from you, the listeners, in the form of ticket sales and donations. Think we get money when you give to your local public radio station? Yeah, we don't. We're an independently produced show and can use every penny we can get. So if the independent spirit moves you, please visit our website at livewireradio.org and click the donate button. Thanks for listening. Uh, Hi, is this the uh, leprechaun
2: audition? Sure is, come in
3: Well you sure do look the part
2: (laughs) You do, you're tiny Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get
4: that all the time uh, hey, where's your pot of gold, Ginger? <laughs>
3: Never gets old.
2: I'm sure it doesn't. Funny, funny stuff. So we just have a few questions for you.
3: First off, can you work early mornings? Oh, sure,
2: sure. Excellent. Great. Also, do you have any special skills?
4: Oh, yeah, I do. They're all on my resume there. I can do uh, stage combat. Um, I tap dance.
3: And, of course, uh,
4: I can do an Irish brogue if need be. <laughs> lassie. Fabulous.
3: I love it. Okay, just a few more questions. Can you manifest small candy marshmallows in various shapes? Uh, I'm I'm not sure I'm understanding you.
2: Pink hearts, orange stars, yellow moons, green clovers, stuff like that.
3: What do you mean by manifest? You know, create out of nothingness with just a wave of your hand or whatever. Huh. Um, No, no, not that I'm aware of.
2: Hmm. Okay, good to know. We're just trying to get a baseline here. Can you control our actions using only your mind?
3: I'm sorry? What? You know, like in Leprechaun 5, In the Hood, when he made that guy shoot himself? I... Is this a joke? Or... Uh, are,
2: are you asking if violence is a joke? Because it's not. Oh, no, no,
4: no, no. Sorry. I, I just Look,
2: the... that doesn't really matter. Do you know where the pot of gold is at the end of the rainbow?
4: Oh, come on. Just answer the question. Why well, I... I assume it's at the end of the rainbow.
2: Right, but where's that? Because it always looks like you can see it, but then you never can. You know, it's so frustrating.
3: Okay, now, th- this is starting to get offensive. Okay, fine. If you want to get all technical, we'd like for one of our three wishes to be that you tell us where the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is. Uh, this is ridiculous.
2: Oh, goodness, is it because we didn't capture you? Here. <laughs> Hey, get your paws off me. Fine, but now you're captured.
4: All right, all right. If you don't open that door, I'm, I'm calling the cops.
3: Okay, don't be cute. Just tell us where... Wait, 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 wait. Don't be cute?
4: You want me to not be adorable? Because that's going to be really hard, all right? Every freaking job I ever auditioned for is cute little person or dancing dream sequence midget or oopa effing loopa. Now I assumed this was going to be yet another gig Announcing some crappy St. Paddy's Day blowout sale But if that's not it if you're, if you're actually deluded enough to believe That I'm a real leprechaun And I can lead you to a pot of gold Or manifest accoutrement for your cereal Then it's appropriate to call the cops Which I am
3: doing right now
2: Whoa, 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 sorry No need to do that, I'm opening the door, see
3: You're you free to go, okay We're, we're, we're sorry Yeah, well, You
4: should be sorry, you people are nuts We are Don't call me again
2: we won't.
4: Our bad. Crazy people, man. Hey, honey. No, it wasn't a commercial. They actually wanted to know where the pot of gold was. I know. Like I'm giving that info up for free, idiots. Oh, no, they'll never find it. Yeah, It's in that magical place, you know, with the music and all the arty types and that one fairy that won't shut up. <laughs> it's...
5: It's... What? From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, where March comes in like a lion and leaves like a screeching cat. You gave a bath and tossed in the pet carrier. It's LiveWire, and now it's the host of LiveWire, broadcasting from that aforementioned pet carrier, Courtney Haumeister.
1: A really good show for you tonight. We have someone here to tell a sweet tale of innocent love that uh, became slightly less innocent over one hot weekend. Aaron Scott is with us tonight, and one of our favorite guests is back with his third book and, of course, a song. Wesley Stace, author of Charles Jessold Considered as a Murderer, is here tonight. Yeah, we're pretty excited about that. And our musical guest tonight is bringing the fire of Eastern European carnivals to American stages. Chervona is with us tonight. Yeah. But first, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater. Uh, We've got Mr. Tyler Hughes right here, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, the stunning Siren of Sound Pat Janowski poet Scott Poole the author of the cheap seats is joining us tonight return guests may know this about Scott what happens is Scott sits in our audience and in the course of just a single hour the amount of time it took Sylvia Plath to preheat the oven too soon it was too soon all right I get it Scott writes an entire poem that encompasses what he's learned over the course of the show, one of of which will be Don't Mention Sylvia Plath and Suicide, (laughs) Ever. Uh, So uh, please welcome Mr. Scott Poole. Get writing, Scott. And sitting in for Ralph Hightley tonight, we have Jim Brunberg and the M Chops. I liked that ending. It was very dramatic. Thank you, Jim and the boys. Um, Before we get to the show, I wanted to address an important issue that I feel like we're all dealing with right now, and that is uh, the tragic loss of two and a half men. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER Uh, If you haven't been following this uh, earth-shattering story, Charlie Sheen went on a rampage, a verbal rampage, on his bosses at CBS, which it appears has now cost him his job, and it's cost us the show. And I'm upset, of course, my God. I was going to watch that show at some point. Um, But as I watched it all unfold, and I thought back to the other famous ranters, like Christian Bale, Alec Baldwin, Mel Gibson, all I could think of was one thing, sexism. Where are all the female ranters, Hollywood? You know? It's 2011. You should be ashamed of yourselves. We're 50% of the population, right? So what's happening? What's the problem? I mean, do women in Hollywood just think they can skate on Lily Tomlin's I Heart Huckabees rant forever? Yes. That was an epic rant. I don't know if you saw it, but it was great. But we can only rely on feminist trailblazers like Tomlin for so long. And Courtney Love... Rants only count when you're still relevant, and I realize (laughs) calling two and a half men relevant is a stretch, but um, 15 million viewers are relevant even if the content is from 1975. And some actually might say that women don't express anger as readily as men, and that is not true. A study at Southwest Missouri State University indicated that, yes, on the surface, uh, we see anger as counterproductive. However, when it comes to -to day-to-day interactions, we take advantage of our anger just as frequently as men do. So it's not a cultural problem. It's not a genetic problem. It appears to be a motivation problem. So, we as women need to get, we just, we've got to step up and say, hey, we also have magic and poetry at our fingertips. You know, we also may have some tiger blood in our systems, and we are also on a drug called Charlie Sheen. Um, Actually, no, I think that's a herpes medication, but you get the point. it's time for the women of the world to put random strings of words together and say them loudly and repeatedly for emphasis. I have koala blood. I am a magical unicorn. I am wearing my underwear inside out on the off chance that what I think is the outside world is actually my body and what I think is my body is actually the outside world. <laughs> Anne Coulter sometimes has a point. No, you know what? That went too far, didn't it? That... But still, it's easy, ladies. I just did a little bit of it. Let's just start, let's see some get up and go, and just, just give us a chance, Hollywood. You know, self-destruction knows no gender. If Courtney Love's taught us anything, it's that. And also that you don't really need to wear a bra to award ceremonies. You know, she's taught us a lot. She's taught us a lot. But uh, moving on, moving on, we'll just, let's all try to move on from the Charlie Sheen debacle, shall we? Yeah. Let's move on from that. Uh, Coming up next on the show is, uh, surprisingly enough, the only international nuclear folk band we've ever had on the show. (laughs) They're a gypsy jazz klezmer punk band that was born about five years ago and played their first gig at Gypsy Mania, a gypsy dance discotheque created by Gogo Bordello's DJ Diamond. They have roots in Russia, Armenia, Italy, Brazil, Germany, Argentina, and Kazakhstan. And they've now traveled all over the US to please welcome Chair Vona to Livewire.
6: is so quiet
0: when we got on stage. It's your oh, you guys made me scared.
2: <laughs> the House of Representatives has voted to cut the entire federal budget for public broadcasting. The cuts now go to the Senate for approval. If the Senate votes to approve the cuts, some of NPR's most popular shows could be altered beyond all recognition. For example. If you don't act now, we simply won't be able to afford Garrison Keeler anymore. We will be forced to replace him with John Tesh.
5: I'm John Tesh, and that's the news from Lake Wobegon this week, where all the women are strong and all the men are good-looking and all the children are blow-drying their hair so they'll look perfect for their auditions. I'm
3: now going to play the piano for an uncomfortably long time. Since we'll have no budget to pay anyone to produce Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the name will have to change to Go Ahead, Tell Me If You Want. What does it matter anyway? Where are the sleeping pills?
2: Is this what you want? Really? Instead of Lourdes Garcia Navarro reporting the latest developments from Libya, do you really want this guy reporting from his basement?
5: Yeah, like I was watching CNN to do this report about how they might get rid of that... Gaddafi or whatever, but I tripped over my bong and knocked the TV over, and now it totally smells like bong water in here now. I'm scared and I'm hungry.
3: It's dark in here. Carl Castle, send for pizza, Carl Castle! It's not very pretty, is it? Instead of Terry Gross interviewing Al Gore on global warming, you'll now have Terry Hatcher interviewing her mom on Chihuahua warming. Forty-five minutes of an old woman talking about various chihuahua hoodies she found at Neiman Marcus. Please, please, don't make us do this.
2: We simply won't be able to afford the all in all things considered anymore. It will have to be called, like, two or three things considered.
3: Please help. Only you can wake up our elected representatives. Only you can let them know the horror and tragedy that awaits Please, for the love of God, Ira Glass is over here every day complaining, and he is so whiny. Please help. Click and clack are prank calling me every day. I mean, who does that? Michelle Norris is starting to hoard. I mean, she took my Post it notes. Come on. It's dark in here. Someone turned off the lights. Carl Castle, send for pizza. Oh, God. <laughs>
1: You're listening to Live Wire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we stimulate every part of your brain, including the part that's forgotten long division but has no problem regurgitating journeys don't stop believin' in its entirety. <laughs> Thanks, brain! Coming up, storyteller Aaron Scott, author and musician Wesley Stace, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Our next guest is a writer and radio producer. His stories have appeared on This American Life, Radiolab, NPR, OPB, and in Portland Monthly. He likes to consider his work as an oral history of underrepresented groups like transgender mayors and well-spoken frat boys. (laughs) He's here tonight with a story of young love, political activism, and uncooperative body fluids. Please welcome Aaron Scott to LiveWire.
7: This is the story of my first bad date, which also happened to encompass my first kiss, my first relationship, my first dramatic public breakup, the entire arc, all over the course of a three-day weekend. (laughs) And it had a lasting legacy. I joined my first queer youth group when I was 16. In months, I was a hardcore queer activist, helping start a queer youth center on MLK and volunteering everywhere I could. I'd like to say I did it for altruistic reasons, but to be honest, I was looking for a boyfriend. And I never even managed to score a date. All I seemed to do is rack up one after another of smoking hot lesbian friends. And by smoking hot, I mean they looked like really hot boys smoking. <laughs> the spring of my junior year, the facilitator of my youth group told us about a queer youth conference in D.C. I imagined an urban wonderland of eager homosexuals. So two friends, Shane and Allie, and I went to the Vancouver Flag chapter and somehow convinced them to pay for plane tickets to our slightly belated, belated big gay quinceanera. This was my first trip to the East Coast, and my first trip without my family. But what really shocks me looking back, given I wasn't exactly an adventurous lad, is that we went without a dime to pay for a hotel room. All we had was a nebulous lead from our facilitator. She said if we could find the Spokane youth group, we could likely sleep on their floor. Now, in the days before cell phones, at a conference of 300 out-proud teens drowning in rainbow jewelry, that was like finding a hot pink needle in a haystack of glittering pink sequins. (laughs) But after a few hours of poking around the hotel, we found the Spokane kids, who also happened to be two boys and a girl. We all went to dinner, and it quickly became apparent that there was a connection between one of the boys and myself. His name was Jacob, he was 16, and he had the most captivating husky blue eyes. We got back to their room to find there were only two queens. Well, four queens, but two queen beds. Um, (laughs) Jacob and I, claiming chivalry, volunteered to sleep on the floor. We made a makeshift bed with extra sheets and switched off the lights. The next 30 minutes were sheer adolescent awkwardness. There were furtive whispers, accidental caresses, waiting for the security of our friend's snoring. And all the while, Jacob tried to kiss me, and I stalled. I trembled. I'd never never kissed anyone. I didn't know what to do. He tried to console me by recounting his nervousness before his first kiss and how he immediately got a bloody nose. I didn't find that very reassuring. Finally, he stopped asking for permission and just did it. And after five minutes of compassionate wrestling, I felt a warmth in my nose, and then a trickle ran down my lip. (laughs) I flipped over onto my back, put a finger up, and it came back covered in blood. I tiptoed to the bathroom, shoved some toilet paper corks up my nostrils, and waited for it to subside. Returning to bed with a hemophiliatic giggle, we dove back (laughs) in. There was little sleep that night. The next day, we were inseparable. We did the same workshops. We ate together. We went to the open mic night where everybody did spoken word covers of Ani DeFranco songs. <laughs> Jacob did 32 flavors. Squint your eyes and look closer. I'm not between you and your ambition. I am a poster girl with no poster. I am 32 flavors and then some. We went to the dance, and then we ended up back in the hotel room smoking pot out of a Mr. Pib can. At which point it became clear that my two friends had hooked up with his two friends, one pair during the nap and one during the dance, because apparently all it takes for a couple of horny t- queer teens to get it on is proximity, some sheets, and the cover of darkness. Although I'd like to think we were just being polite and doing our part to pay for our share of the room with in-kind donation. That night, Jacob and I got one of the queens. We had a repeat session of the night before, but with more padding. And then he wanted to spoon all night long. I couldn't sleep and kept rolling away. He pursued me across the bed until his smothering embrace was the only thing holding me from tumbling over the edge. I watched the big digital hotel clock numbers tick by three, four, five, Surrounded by snores, stewing in his precocious chest hair, I got more and more pissed off. When morning finally came, bleary-eyed, I wanted space. <laughs> so when he said he wanted to go to the radical self-empowerment through spoken word poetry workshop, I said I wanted to go to the accessing our liberated bodies, engaging and elevating gender queer sensitivities workshop. <laughs> then he wanted to go speak to his congressional representative, so I went to speak to mine. When we met up later that day, I I felt distant, smothered, too young to be imprisoned by such a serious relationship. (laughs) We had burned bright. We hadn't quite come to I love you, but close. Another spark in my capricious little 16-year-old heart had sputtered out a mere 36 hours later. (laughs) That night, everybody was back in our hotel room. I was sitting on the couch, and Jacob was laying in my lap. I said, Jacob... I want to sleep on the rollaway bed tonight, alone. He said, but, but this is our last night together. I said, I know, I know, but I, I just need space. He replied, what are you really saying? This isn't about sleeping. What is this about? We went back and forth, our voices rising, our friends pretending not to listen, until finally he said, fine, we're over. This relationship is over. I'm breaking up with you. And he ran out of the room. Shane looked at me and coughed, <coughs> drama queen, and I chased after him and caught him in the stairwell where I found him with tears in his eyes. I said, Jacob, don't be unreasonable. We both knew this could never be more than just a three-day fling, which is not the right thing to say to a 16-year-old boy in love. He yelled at me. I yelled back. We it out in the stairs until we must have woken up the entire fifth floor of the hotel. And then finally, exhausted, we were able to come to the mutual agreement that yes, indeed, this is over. We went back to the room, not saying a word. I slept on the rollaway. The next morning, Ali and Shane kissed their mutually understood weekend flings goodbye. Jacob and I just looked at each other from across the room, and then he left. I don't know what happened to him, but ever since, when I'm a long way from home and I'm having an intense romantic connection with someone, at least four times now during our first kiss, I get a bloody nose. The responses have ranged from laughter to being turned on. But to each, I could honestly say, it's not you, it was him. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
5: That was Aaron Scott, and you're listening to Live Wire Radio. If you're in the Portland area, come to our next show at the Alberta Rose Theater on March 18th with guests Bill Rausch of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, author Andres DeBuse III, filmmaker Matt McCormick, Tony Furtado, and others. Thanks for listening.
2: Recently, a journalist pretending to be billionaire David Koch called Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and then recorded the conversation, believing he was talking to one of his most affluent political backers, Governor Walker's frank, and at sometimes revelatory statements left his supporters scrambling to control the damage. Here now are the recordings of the following phone calls.
3: Well, I mean, that's what I was saying. Once we get these unions out of the way, it'll be smooth sailing through the next few elections. Beautiful,
5: beautiful. Let's get you out to Cali when all this is over, and I'll show you a real good time. You know,
3: I'd love it. Oh, got to go. I got another call coming in. Hello?
1: Uh, Hi, is this Governor Walker? Oh, this is he. Um, Governor, is your refrigerator running?
3: (laughs) Well, it is, and you know, I'm glad it is, because it just goes to show you that Wisconsin can still get things done, even without the Democrats.
1: Oh, uh, well, well, you better go catch it.
3: Well, yeah, I think that's the plan, you know. I mean, even if this becomes a power struggle with the utility companies, I, Scott Walker, am not budging.
1: Uh, I, hang I, up, hang up. Okay,
3: bye. I'll go keep bye. Oh, Scott Walker here.
8: I'm Detective
6: John Temple.
3: Mm. Hi, Detective. What can I do for you?
5: It's not a tumor. I'm, I'm sorry? Not that one, not that one. Push this one. I'm a cop, you idiot!
3: Well, the police department is vital to a healthy Wisconsin, and I'm not trying to deprive you of any of your benefits at this time.
5: My CPU is a neural
4: net processor, a learning computer.
3: Hmm, that's understandable. But listen, the people of Wisconsin are fed up with unions gouging the state during a recession. Dude, he doesn't get it. It's nice talking to you, detective. I got another call coming in. Hasta la vista, baby. Okay. <laughs> this is Governor Walker. Herr Governor, this is Adolf Hitler. Well, guten Tag, mein Herr. What can I do for you? Um, uh, are Nazis cool? Right, but as I said, this is about the budget. This is about public sector unions. Essentially, you're having taxpayer money be used to lobby for spending more taxpayer money. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, sure. Um, Deutschland über alles. Well, das stimmt. Deutschland, über alles is their good, and you know that I know that you stand with the people of Wisconsin. Um, this 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 didn't turn out like I thought it would. I I gotta go. Ja, vote mein Führer, Governor. Uh, Yes, Susan, what is it?
2: Governor, Senator LASIK and Representative Honnidul are waiting for your signature on the bill banning prank phone calls.
3: (laughs) Prank phone calls? I mean, who makes prank phone calls anymore? Let another governor worry about that, Susan. I got some unions to bust. Well,
1: when we met Wesley Stace about six years ago, he was still mostly known as John Wesley Harding, the successful touring musician slash English man about town. That was when he published his first novel, The Critically Acclaimed Misfortune, under his real name, Wesley Stace. Since then, he's been successfully melding his two personalities. He released another book by George and then another record, Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead. And he also started his own ridiculously cool variety show with Eugene Merman called The Cabinet of Wonders in New York City. And he has guests that mirror his own sort of dual personality like Sarah Vowell, Rhett Miller, John Hodgman, Andrew Bird, and Kristen Hirsch. He's here with his third novel, Charles Jesselb, considered as a murderer. Please welcome Wesley Stace to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Wesley. Thank you very it's much. It's always such a pleasure to have you here.
9: It's so nice to be here. You,
1: so so this is your third book. This one centers around, uh, it's the, a tragic murder-suicide uh, that takes place around World War I England. Yes. Um, and you've written, this is your third novel. its They're all period pieces, but this is the first time that you've ever written about music. That's so right. So what was it that made you want to write about music it's, this time? It,
9: it, well, I really did want to write about music, and I really did earnestly not want to write about my world of broken strings and sticky dressing rooms and unpaid deposits and things mm-hmm. like that and so I thought I, and so I wanted to write about music purely so I thought I would write about a form of music that I essentially don't know very much about which is classical music but where the two intersect is this wonderful folk revival movement that many nations when their borders are being eroded or when they're under, it just about to go to war as we were, England was with Germany um, you know, kind of rediscover their national song because in 1910 the four most famous composers favourite composers in England were Wagner, Strauss Mendelssohn and Handel and they were all Krauts. And, so, right. and so so, England was going uh, its own way around a nationalist movement, rather later than everybody else had done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, that was, so, so so. that's kind of where they interconnect, because that was when England, Vaughan Williams and people like that, discovered the national song and tried to kind of turn it into a, a national music. Right. But in fact, the book, uh, it starts off, I saw a Werner Herzog documentary about this guy called Gesualdo, mm-hmm. uh, called Death for Five Voices, which I totally recommend. And Gesualdo um, killed his wife and her lover in about 16-something and uh, got away with it. And in fact, more than got away with it, he didn't get away with anything because she was committing adultery. Therefore, it was his right to kill her. Of course. So so he did it in Naples, as you would. And he, he he went to the man that I think was technically known as the head of Naples, and uh, said, what should I do? And he said, you should run away. And so he went back to his uh, town, which was called Gesualdo, because handily he was a prince and he had a town named after him. And as if his life couldn't get any more Shakespearean, he cut, off, he cut down the trees for seven miles all around his hill, so he could see when they came for him. And then, bizarrely, he wrote this incredible atonal music in madrigal form that wasn't really understood until Stravinsky picked it up at the beginning of the 20th century, which is quite amazing. And then, so I read a book about uh, Gesualdo, and it was all true. And then I read a book about Stravinsky, and in Stravinsky it told me that the critics... And Stravinsky had an incredibly codependent relationship where he would scandalize them and kind of tell them what to write and egg them on so they would write more about him. And I suddenly thought, ah, a novel narrated by a critic where he thinks he's controlling the artist.
1: Well, I thought that it was really interesting for you as a musician to write a book where the relationship centers around a critic and, and someone who makes art. Right. Um, and, and was there an, were there any other reasons that you wanted to write about that relationship? <laughs> well,
9: the uh, not not personally, but um, the, it was it was put to me that it was uh, slightly revengeful of my, my music critic ends up with uh, the uh, diseased tinnitus. That's and it was it was, oh, it was it was it was devastating it was put to read to me that. that that was possibly slightly revengeful <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but were, why that happened was I was at a, I was playing a gig with Steve Win in uh, Frankfurt in Germany and I was at the merch booth after I'd finished my acoustic guitar set and. Um, This guy came up. He said, I'd like to buy your CDs. And so I I sold him some. I said, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. He said, yes, I love the show. I said, don't you like... He was leaving. I said, don't you like Steve Wynn? And he said, no, I love Steve Wynn. And I went, oh, okay. Well, uh, why are you leaving then? And he said, because I have a ringing in my ears. I have tinnitus. And I went, oh, because I pronounce it tinnitus. I went, oh, tinnitus. tinnitus. I said, oh, tinnitus? And he went, no, all the time.
1: It's just one of many tinnitus jokes that you have in your pocket, right?
9: (laughs) No, that's the only one. But the moment he said that to me, I was like, I've got to put tinnitus in a novel. Sadly...
1: It's not as funny in the book as, as that well, story.
9: Sa- you know, it's, sadly, it's really tragic. Yeah, it is tragic. And sadly, I couldn't give my narrator that joke. That joke would have been beyond him. I tried oh, absolutely. To, I tried to squeeze it in at about 10 plus, but I kept cutting well, it and out. You, so you, I just have to tell it. There's every some time wonderful I talk
1: turns of phrases in, in the book. It struck me.
9: Well, my uh, critic's a bit fussy and a bit uptight. And mm-hmm. he has been told by his publisher his job is to promote English music because he writes for a national list newspaper at the expense of all else. So th- yeah. he's really kind of working on his job which it, and he finds this composer and he's like, this composer's going to make me and I am going to make this composer. And any situation, I think, where a critic is, thinks he's in charge of what the art means... But, and in fact, the easiest way to think of the composer, which I did frequently when I was writing the novel, is Bob Dylan, who's another person who who used folk music as a stepping stone to a to a greater expression. I mean, if, if, right. Bob, if Bob Dylan had only written Blown in the Wind and Times They Were Changing, he'd still be famous now and we'd never have forgotten him, but in the same sense that we would never have forgotten Phil Oakes or Tom Paxton. It was because he made that wild leap into yeah. the electric you know, unknown and was booed that, you know, Bob Dylan's the monolithic figure he is today. My composer, his leap is into atonal modern music, which the critic sees as a betrayal not only of, you know, what the critic believes, but also of England and what England believes in because, you know, all these people, all these influences are uh, German and modern. And my critic, Leslie Shepard, is one of the people who would have booed at Newport.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he did. He, he uh, clearly adored Jessel as a, as a musician when he first met him. And there was a, there was a wonderful passage where he um, described him as a natural musician who hears music in the rattle of bicycle frames and the bark of a dog. Um, do you think that there are musicians that are like that?
9: No, I don't, actually. And, in fact, <laughs> in fact the critic says what he says after that bit. It was funny, because I gave, that, I gave the book to a composer, and the only change he made was he said, those people don't exist. That's just a critical fantasy. And so, in fact, what happens immediately after that bit is he says, but perhaps that's just a romantic idea of what a composer's like. Perhaps it's nothing like that. And the fact is that when you meet composers, they're not talking about the pure sphere of music. They're talking, like we all are, about commissions and what possible instruments they can get to play and what's around and who's available and who'll do it for the money and all those, you know, it was tedious really, things. It
1: was, it was very interesting to me to see the parallels that you talked about in the book in terms of what it was like to be a musician and being commissioned and what musicians talked about at, in 1910 and that I, f- I felt like you were in a way speaking a little bit from your experience currently.
9: no absolutely I mean I did feel that you know there's, a, there's an incredible lineage of fictional composers that not because of the quality of the book but just because he is a believable fictional composer that Jessold finds himself in which is you know there's uh, Van and Proust and Dr. Faust in you know, Adrian Leverkun. And, so and, and I read a lot of those books and a lot of the, 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 the composers aren't very believable sometimes it's because they don't describe the music quite well enough and um, it would be like writing a, uh, a book about a stand-up comedian and you don't give him a joke yeah. In the entire book. You know, it yeah. would not, you would not understand. You know, you could waffle on about his work forever. So I just felt it was important to give a, a kind of a real sense of the music.
1: Well, and you did. You, I mean, it, you, you, you sort of started writing an opera in this. You know, as I was reading it, I thought, that's interesting. I wonder if he would ever want to do that. Um, but it's based on this song. Right. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it. Um, say-
9: well, what happens is that the, the, the composer kills his wife and her lover, like Gesualdo did, uh, as if in imitation of that. And uh, it's the night before... And kills himself. The night before the premiere of his opera, Little Musgrave, that is going to change the course of English music. And um, the book starts, really, with that police report, and then it goes back to when the the critic first met the composer, and they go on a bike ride, which was my initial image, was two men on a bike going down a country lane, and they're looking for someone to sing in the rain they find a shepherd in a barn and he sings them this song and it's quite a moving scene in the book where they hear this thing that completely transports them and this is what is fallen down to and this
1: is a real song yes it's a great it's a great folk song
9: fairport convention did a version of it called matty groves
1: and you're going to sing it for us
9: i will sing the version that i know of it which is very different from the fantastically insane version in the book Uh, but but it's the version i know okay shall i do that yeah
1: that would be fabulous
8: in the year, Musgrave to the church did go to see fair ladies there. Some came down in red velvet and some came down in poor, but the last to come down was the Lady Barnard, the fairest of them all. She's cast a look at little Musgrave as bright as the summer sun. Then bethought this little musgrave This lady's a love I've won Good day, good day, you handsome youth God make you safe and free What would you give this day musgrave To lie one night with me? Well, I dare not for my land Lady, I dare not for my life For the ring on your white finger Shows you are Lord Barnard's wife Lord Barnard's to the hunting gone I hope he never returns You shall slip into his bed To keep his lady warm There's nothing for to fear Musgrave, you'd nothing have to fear We'll set a page outside the gate To watch till morning's here And it won't be to that little foot page In an ill death, may he die He's away to the green, green wood As fast as he could fly When he came to the white water He fell on his belly and swam When he came to the other side He took to his heels and he ran When he came to the green, green wood It as dark as dark can be And he found Lord Barnard and his men Asleep beneath a tree Rise up, rise up, master, he said. Rise up and speak to me. Were well, your wife's in bed with a little musgrave? Rise up right speedily. Well, if this be true, you tell to me, then gold shall be your fee. But if this be false, you tell to me, then hanged you shall be. Go saddle me the black, he said Go saddle me the grey And sound you not the horn, he said Lest our coming it would betray Now there was a man in Lord Barnard's train Who loved little Musgrave. Grey and he blew his horn so loud and shrill, away must grave away. I think I hear the morning cock, I think I hear the jay, I think I hear Lord of Bonnard's horn, away must grave away. Lie still, lie still, little must grave, keep me from the cold. It's nothing but a shepherd's boy driving his flock to the fold. Is not your hawk upon its perch, your steed is eating hay. You a gay lady in your arms, and yet you would away. So he's turned him right and round about, then he fell fast asleep. When he awoke, Lord of Barnard's men were standing at his feet. Well, how do you like my bed, my grave? How do you like my sheets? How do you like my lady Fair that lies in your arms asleep Well it's well I like your bed He said it's well I like she sheets Better I like your fair lady That lies in my arms asleep well, get up Get up, Lord Barnard, cried, get up as swift as you can. For it never will be said in my country that I slew one on a man. I have two swords in one scabbard, full dear, they cost my purse. And you shall have the best of them, and I shall have the worst. So slowly he got up, slowly he put on. Slowly down the stairs he goes A-thinking to be slain The first stroke that Musgrave took It was both deep and sore Down he fell at Barnard's feet Word he never spoke more Well, how do you like his cheek, lady? Yeah, how do you like his chin? And how do you like his fair body? Now there's no life within Well, it's well I like's cheek Said it's well I like's chin Better I like his fair body Than all your kith and kin And he's taken up a long, long sword Strike a mortal blow And through and through the lady's heart The cold steel it did fell out upon a day as many in the year must grave to the church did go to see
5: Wesley Stace, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and let your computer do all the work while you nap or frolic or stare obsessively at the status bar. <laughs> it's your choice. Get more information on subscribing to our podcast at livewireradio.org.
1: You're listening to Livewire Radio, offering up comedy, music, and conversation in deliciously digestible bursts. We'll be right back after this short break. once again chervona yeah. And now, as we promised the man who's been toiling away the whole hour while we've accomplished almost nothing, please welcome poet Scott Poole.
10: What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. (laughs) I'm 5'6" and a lot of people think I'm short. I don't see what the big deal is. I used to be shorter, a lot shorter, <laughs> like when I was four, like leprechaun shorter, like walk under a coffee table without ducking shorter. Boy, I miss those golden days of midgethood. It was like a Chavona concert every day. <laughs> there was a lot of dancing, a lot of singing, I had a red balloon and a top hat, and I spent all day bouncing on the balloon trying to pop it with my butt. <laughs> Seemed like a perfectly reasonable thing to do with your day and your butt. <laughs> and when I yelled, woo, I didn't worry about silence. It was so great. People would yell and reply. I would say, woo, and my parents would say, ah, woo, ah, woo, ah. Sure, to the outside world, I was just wearing my underwear backwards and sucked at singing, and everything I was saying was unintelligible. But I didn't know I was acting like Charlie Sheen. (laughs) I was four. I thought I had koala blood. I would wear my underwear backwards. I wouldn't wear underwear at all. It all worked. It's amazing so many people hate short people because everybody was short once and their lives were so carefree and joyous at that time. you think they'd be jealous of short people. you think they'd be reminded of the good days before they became tall and gangly and a freak of nature. <laughs> they didn't have to worry about NPR being cut or worry about missing their radical self-empowerment through slam poetry workshop before having a bloody nose during your first kiss on the dirty floor of a D.C. hotel room. When you get a bloody nose as a kid, it's simple. You just look at the blood on your hands, let out a rebel yell, and try to sprint out of the room, but instead run into the wall and knock yourself out. (laughs) Who wouldn't pine for a simpler time like that? Wouldn't you just like to compose your life without having to worry about all the damn critics? If only Charlie Sheen were shorter, things wouldn't be so bad. Maybe he could even get someone to change his diaper. Thank you.
1: Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening.
5: Our thanks to our guests tonight, Aaron Scott, Wesley Stace, and Cherbona. The mutton chops are Jim Brumberg, Reed Waldsmith, and Paul Evans. Tonight's Show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Fitch & Associates, and the Falcon Art Community. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as You Fine People. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Our senior producer is Robin Tannenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and Scott Poole. Performers Tyler Hughes, Tricia Ferguson, and Siren of Sound Patrinowski. Our guest writer this week is Timmy Williams. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeffrey Hilton Simmons. Production management by Drew Flynn. Stage management by Matt King. Guest wrangling by Ferial Harbin. Theme by Courtney Mondrele and Ralph Hutley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Social media coordinator is Trent Finley. Our publicist is Cassell Communications. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Our development specialist is Bree Gray. For more information about LiveWire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is your announcer, Tyler Hughes. You can't see it, but I'm, I'm tugging my earlobe right now to send a secret greeting to someone special out there. And no one else is the wiser.
0: Right, Grandma?